So I'd like you to open your Bibles to the Gospel according to John, chapter 1, and I'll be reading verses 29 through 36, John chapter 1. And if you don't have a Bible, you can use a pew Bible because I'm going to have you referring to the Bible throughout my message this morning, so you want to keep a Bible handy. John the Baptist was at the Jordan River baptizing people. And we read in verse 29, the next day John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is the one I meant when I said, a man who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but the reason I came baptizing with water was that he might be revealed to Israel. Then John gave this testimony. I saw the Spirit come down from heaven as a dove and remain on him. I would not have known him except that the one who sent me to baptize with water told me, the man on whom you see the Spirit come down and remain is he who will baptize with the Holy Spirit. I have seen and I testify that this is the Son of God. The next day, John was there again with two of his disciples. When he saw Jesus passing by, he said, Look, the Lamb of God. Did you know that the expression Lamb of God is found only in two places in all of Scripture? And you just heard those two places this morning. John chapter 1 verse 29 and John chapter 1 verse 36. It was uttered by John the Baptist at the Jordan River when he saw Jesus coming toward him and when he saw Jesus passing by. The title had never been used before. We were just singing, you are my all in all. And we were singing, Jesus, Lamb of God, worthy is your name. But we would never have known that title before John the Baptist used it for the first time. It's found nowhere else in the New Testament, and it's unknown in extra-biblical Greek usage where the two words, lamb and God, are put together as a title. I have an idea that might help us this morning as we explore this whole meaning of the lamb of God and seek to understand what John was talking about. Excuse me for just a minute. This lamb, I understand, is named Blaze, and Blaze is one week old. We could say that this is the lamb of Chris Sims. And when we say the lamb of Chris Sims, we could mean this is the lamb belonging to Chris Sims. Or we could mean this is the lamb provided by Chris Sims. Well, in the same way, when John the Baptist used the title, the lamb of God, was he saying, this is the lamb belonging to God, or this is the lamb provided by God. The term 
Lamb of God raises two interesting questions. If these two words had never before been put together to form a title, what did John the Baptist mean when he used the expression? It is a startling statement. The Lamb of God. What would this title have meant to the listeners, to the people who were hearing John the Baptist? How would they have understood it? And Jesus himself, Jesus didn't deny this description or title. How would John's audience have understood the expression, Lamb of God? Well, to answer these questions, we need to put the lamb figure in context in the Old Testament and the sacrificial system to see what the people of Jesus's day would naturally have been led to think about when they heard lamb of God. So let's begin by going way back to Genesis. So if you've got your Bible, I'd like you to open to Genesis chapter 3. Now, you know the story of, Cain, of uh, Adam and Eve and how they disobeyed God by eating from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil that they had been commanded not to eat from. And we know that because of their disobedience that they were to be banished from the Garden of Eden. But before they were banished, if you look at verse 21 of chapter 3, there's a very interesting statement there. And it says, the Lord God took or made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. Garments of skin. So I don't know about you, but the question that comes to my mind is where did the skin come from? Where did these garments that the Lord made come from? Well, the only thing I can think of is they had to come from an animal or several animals. And that means that an animal had to be sacrificed in order to cover Adam and Eve when they were banished from the garden. Don't be afraid to uh, pat blaze. So could this be the first animal sacrifice occurring back in Genesis chapter 3. Now if you'll turn to Genesis chapter 4, verse 2, you'll see that it says that Abel was a keeper of flocks and Cain was one who tilled the land or the soil. And it says that Abel brought fat portions of the firstborn of his flock and offered them to the Lord, and the Lord was pleased with his offering. And then it says that Cain brought some of the fruit of the soil and offered it to the Lord, and the Lord was not pleased with his sacrifice or with his offering. And it says that Abel was very angry, or Cain was very angry, and his face was downcast, and the Lord said to Cain, why is your face downcast, and why are you angry? If you do what is right, 
will you not be accepted? The implication there is that Cain knew what was right for an offering for the Lord, and he hadn't done it. Now, Bible scholars have disagreed about this as to why God would have been upset with Cain's offering. There are some that say, well, the reason that God was not pleased with Cain's offering is because it wasn't of the first fruits. He didn't take the first of his crops and offer them to the Lord, whereas Abel, it says, took the fat portions of the firstborn of his flock. There are other scholars who would say, well, no, maybe it's because Cain knew that an animal was necessary for an offering that would be pleasing to the Lord. And he just brought some of the vegetables that he had grown. Well, whichever way it is, What's fascinating to me is Cain and Abel were second generation. They were the children of Adam and Eve. And by that time, there was already a system in place that they knew or should have known what would be a pleasing offering to God. Now turn ahead to Genesis chapter 7, verse 2. Noah and his ark. You all know the story of Noah and his ark. Well, it says here in verse 2 that they were to bring seven. Noah was to bring seven of pairs. If you look, you have a footnote there, and it should say seven pairs of clean animals, male and female, and two of the unclean, male and female. Why seven pairs of the clean animals? And what was a clean animal? How, how would Noah have known what a clean animal was? Well, if you hold your finger there and turn to Leviticus chapter 11, verse 2, Leviticus chapter 11, verse 2, you'll see a description of clean animals. Don't worry, girls, I'm coming. <laughs> and it says that a clean animal is one that has a divided hoof, and choose the cud. And then it goes on to give examples of animals that don't satisfy that requirement, like a camel, choose the cud, but it doesn't have a divided hoof. And there are other animals that have divided hoofs, but don't chew the cud, and so on. So I want you to tell me, Jimmy, if you would look at Blaze's foot, tell me what kind of a foot Blaze has. It's a hoof, and it's divided. It's got two parts to it, right? So why would Noah have been instructed to bring seven pairs of clean animals and only one pair of unclean animals? Well, look at Genesis chapter 8, verse 20. And what does Noah do as soon as the floodwaters recede and they're able to exit the ark. The first thing that he does, it says, Noah built an altar and sacrificed some of the clean animals and clean birds. Now, if he only had two clean animals and he sacrificed them, 
they would be extinct. So the fact that he brought seven showed that God was already taking care of the future of these animals. So we have to know that by Genesis chapter 7 and chapter 8, Noah knew that there was a proper way of offering a sacrifice to the Lord that would be pleasing to him. Now turn to Genesis chapter 22. You all know the story of Abraham and Isaac. Abraham was a hundred years old when Isaac was born. It was the son that he had been longing for that God had promised him. And from the story, we have to figure that by this time, Isaac was probably a teenager, maybe around 15 years old. He could have been a young man because Abraham cut wood for the offering because God said, I want you to take your son, your only son, whom you love, and take him to the region of Moriah, to the place that I show you, and I want you to sacrifice him there. So he got some wood and fire and provisions because it was a three days journey. He took two of his servants along with Isaac and they went to Mount Moriah. Now Mount Moriah, if you want to check in Second um, Chronicles 3 verse 1, it says that the temple that Solomon built was in Jerusalem on Mount Moriah. So Mount Moriah was where Jerusalem ended up being established and where the temple of the Lord, which is where all the sacrifices took place after the temple was built. All the sacrifices in Israel. So Abraham sees the mountain and he tells his servants, you wait here and the boy and I will go and worship and then we will return. So Abraham gets the wood and he puts it on Isaac. So Isaac had to be big enough and strong enough to carry the wood up the mountain. And Abraham takes the fire and the knife. And as they're walking up the mountain, Isaac's thinking. <laughs> I'd be thinking too. And Isaac said, Father. And Abraham says, yes, my son. And he said, we've got the wood and we've got the fire, but where, where is the lamb? Where is the lamb? Isaac already knew that they needed a lamb if they were going to make an offering to the Lord. Where's the lamb? And this is by Genesis 22. And Abraham says, the Lord will provide a lamb for him. The Lord will provide. So when they get on top of Mount Moriah, they build an altar out of stone and they lay the wood on the altar. And then Abraham binds Isaac. He ties him up and puts him on the wood. And he takes out his knife. And before he does anything, the angel of the Lord calls to him, Abraham, Abraham. And Abraham says, here I am. And the angel of the Lord says, don't lay a hand on the boy. 
And there in the thicket was a ram that had been caught by its horns. And Abraham went over and got the ram, released Isaac. They put the ram on the altar and sacrificed it to the Lord. And Abraham said, he called that place, it will be provided. The Lord will provide. And the author of Genesis says, and it said to this day that on the mountain of the Lord, it will be provided. So when John the Baptist said, behold, the Lamb of God, were people thinking about the Garden of Eden? Adam and Eve, Cain and Abel, Noah, Abraham and Isaac and the substitute ram? Is that what they were trying to relate to the understanding of the Lamb of God? Now, if you'll turn to Genesis or Exodus chapter 12. Exodus chapter 12 is a familiar story also. The Passover lamb that God had wanted his people, Israel, to be released from Egypt. And Moses gave them the word, let my people go. And Pharaoh kept refusing. And so the final plague was going to be the angel of death was going to come to Egypt and take the firstborn of all of the children and all of the animals. Except if you were an Israelite, you were to take one lamb per family, a year old, without spot or blemish, and you were to kill it and cook it for dinner, and you were to take the blood from that lamb and put it on the doorposts and the lintel of your house. And when the angel of death came and saw the blood of the lamb on the door, the angel of death passed over that house. And so the Passover lamb was responsible for saving the firstborn in that house. Could this be what the people were thinking about when they heard the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world? Now go to Leviticus chapter 16. Leviticus chapter 16 is talking about the Day of Atonement. There is one day out of the year, just one day that they had two goats and lots were cast for them. And if the lot fell on one of the goats, he was sacrificed as an offering to the Lord and the other goat. Aaron, we're told, if you look around verse 20, would lay his hands on that goat and pray all of the wickedness and the sin of the nation of Israel upon the head of that goat. And that goat was to be the scapegoat. And that goat was then led out into the wilderness, carrying all the sins of the people of Israel. So that was the sin-bearing goat. And then he was released in the wilderness. Could this be what was in the minds of people when they heard about the Lamb of God? And then if you look at, we'll skip ahead to Isaiah 53 and the suffering servant. And Isaiah 53, we understand, is talking about the Messiah, but the Messiah is also identified as a lamb. If you look at verses 7 and 8, it said, like a, 
lamb that is led to the slaughter, so he opened not his mouth as a sheep goes to the slaughter, he opens not his mouth. So the suffering servant is described as having the characteristics of a lamb. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. On him was laid the sin of us all. So is this how people would have understood the term, the lamb of God? And of course, a lamb had to be sacrificed continually each year. The Day of Atonement happened each year. And do you know that God accepted that sacrifice out of grace? He received that sacrifice through his grace. And if you were to go to Hebrews, you would see that in Hebrews, the book of Hebrews, chapters 9 and 10, it talks about Jesus offering himself, not again and again, but once for all time as the final sacrifice. So it didn't have to be repeated each year, as in the case of a lamb. So were people thinking about the sin-bearing lamb? Were they thinking about the substitute ram? Were they thinking about the Passover lamb? Were they thinking about the suffering servant? We could look through the New Testament because the New Testament carries on the whole theme of the lamb, although it doesn't use the word lamb of God. But Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 7 says, Christ, the Passover lamb, has been sacrificed for you. The Passover lamb. And 1 Peter, that passage that Gary read this morning, says... For you know that it was not with perishable things such as silver and gold that redeemed you from the empty way of life handed down to you from your forefathers, but with the precious blood of a lamb, but with Christ, the precious blood of a lamb without spot or blemish. And then if you go to Revelation, and I heard Marcus this morning pray about worthy is the lamb that was slain. John in Revelation uses the word lamb 28 times. And it's the lamb that was slain from the foundation of the world. He talks about the scroll and the lamb. He talks about the marriage supper of the lamb. He talks about the lamb's book of life. He talks about the throne of God and of the lamb. And so from Genesis, all the way to Revelation, you see this whole concept of the Lamb of God. And I hope by seeing this little one-week-old lamb blaze, you get the idea of what it would mean for a lamb to give their life for your sin as a covering, a repeatable sacrifice. And then I hope you understand what it means for Jesus to have given his life as the Lamb of God, to cover your sin and my sin, that we might be forgiven. So in conclusion, many people today are unfamiliar with the wonderful message of the Lamb of God. Because of our rebellion and sin, because of our disobedience, we deserved death. 
Because the Bible says there is no forgiveness of sin without the shedding of blood. But God in his grace and mercy. You know those two words, grace and mercy? Grace means unmerited favor. Grace means getting something you don't deserve. Keep that in mind. Getting something you don't deserve. Mercy means getting, not getting something you do deserve. Mercy, not getting something you do deserve, which is death. And grace is getting something you don't deserve, which is God in his grace and mercy provided a substitute sacrifice for us, his only son, Jesus. You know where Jesus was crucified? On Mount Moriah, the same place that Abraham had taken eyes in the same place that God provided a ram as a substitute for Isaac. God provided his only son, Jesus, the lamb of God, who is willing to die in our place so that our sins were paid for and forgiven. And we could have life eternal. And that happens when we put our faith and our trust in Jesus Christ as our savior, as our Lord as the Lamb of God. So my question for you this morning is, is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world your Savior and your Lord? Have you committed your life to Jesus, the Lamb of God? You're all in all. Let's pray. Our Father, we give you thanks and praise for the wonderful story of the Lamb and how it's woven throughout Scripture from Genesis to Revelation. And Father, we're amazed that you would send your only Son, Jesus, as the Lamb of God, as the Lamb belonging to you, but as the Lamb provided by you. And Father, we thank you and praise you for his substitution, taking our place on the cross of Calvary. And Father, if there is anyone here this morning that does not know you, Lord Jesus, as their Lord and Savior, I pray that your Holy Spirit would minister to their heart, open their eyes, and draw them to yourself. And so, Father, we commit this time to you, and we give you thanks and praise. In Jesus' name.